So the title of my talk is Porous Penality and the Myth of Liberal Punishment, Lessons from South Africa. So I want to start with the puzzle or strange fact that uh, between 2000 to 2020, or actually, sorry, 2004 to 2020, South Africa experienced a steep drop in prison population rates from 403 per 100,000 to 248. During the same period, there was also a dramatic increase in prisoners serving life terms and an increase in recorded cases of extrajudicial punishment by vigilantes, police officers, and prison wardens. So my main arguments are that firstly, rates of imprisonment do not give an accurate indication of penal punitiveness, and that they have to be considered in conjunction with other penal forms, lawful and unlawful. Secondly, I argue that penal power is inherently unstable and susceptible to collapse into violence. So um, this is how my talk's gonna proceed. I'm going to first explain some key terms. Then I'm gonna give concrete examples from my, my South African case study. The key terms that I'm gonna be explaining now are extrajudicial punishment, porous penality, police power, and illegality. So extrajudicial punishment, I define as punishment-like phenomena, which are inflicted by civilians or state actors in response to an allegation of criminality or wrongdoing. From a strictly legalistic perspective, this is not punishment with a capital P because it isn't preceded by a finding of guilt in a criminal court. However, in practice, it is very much like it. Those on the receiving end certainly experience it as punishment and sometimes the instigators themselves intend it to be punishment. Extrajudicial punishment isn't necessarily unlawful. For example, as um, Catherine Beckett and Steve Herbert, Ananya Roy and Nick Blomley have shown in their work, park exclusion orders, punitive bail conditions, evictions, etc., cetera, are, are all lawful forms of extrajudicial punishment. Some punishments, even lawful ones, are borderline lawful in the sense that their legality is subject to contestation and is sometimes appealed. The term borderline lawful also describes situations where an action starts out as, as uh, starts out lawfully, but then turns into unlawful violence. So, for example, when a prison officer attempts to restrain a prisoner, but ends up inflicting excessive force, or when a neighborhood watch engages in lawful community policing, but in the process assaults a suspect. I use the term porous penality to describe a specific type of penality where penal boundaries are obviously porous and penal forms visibly fluid where arbitrariness, violence, and the infliction of extrajudicial punishment on racialized others is the norm. So the word penality obviously comes from Garland, and um, I use it in the same way that he does to include the discourses, practices, and cultural underpinnings of the field, which makes up the penal realm. 
So as such, penality consists of more than just punishment in its narrow legalistic sense of the term. In spaces of porous penality, the boundary between law and violence and between different forms of extrajudicial punishment, such as, for example, banishment and murder, arrest and assault, is blurred and fleured. It's constantly forming and reforming. I also use the term porous to describe the fluid boundaries between legal categories or labels with legal ramifications, such as victim and offender, reasonable or excessive force, policing and punishment. When looked at empirically, however, all forms of penality are porous because punishment, however one defines it, is based on coercion and violence. Since punishment is at its core a violent form of social control, it carries with it the potential to spiral into unlawful violence. This instability or capacity to spiral is exaggerated in certain contexts. Thus, porous penality is most obvious in marginalized physical spaces, such as informal settlements in South Africa, favelas in Brazil, inner city ghettos in the US and France, or in specific countries in the global south with their histories of colonial rule and penal excess, where legal pluralism and extrajudicial punishments by the state, settlers, and subjects were central techniques of rule. In these spaces, the line between policing and punishment is a porous one. The police often inflict extrajudicial um, punishment, and similarly, Civilian policing has the tendency to mutate into sometimes lethal extrajudicial punishment. It is the racialized poor who are doubly punished, both by liberal penal forms such as imprisonment and by extrajudicial punishments. Thus, porous penality is intrinsically connected to inequality and precarization. It is both an outcome of and productive of further precarities and inequalities. I'm not arguing that porous penality or the racialized extrajudicial punishment, which is central to it, are the opposite of liberal penality with its focus on the rule of law, but rather that the two forms of penality are coupled. Porous penality is the underside or shadow, that which is not always visible, but which is always there of liberal or neoliberal penality. Racialized extrajudicial punishment is not an exception to or something out of the ordinary or outside of liberal penality. It is the norm. So while in one space time, we might have liberal penality where the rule of law is largely adhered to and violence in the name of law is largely submerged or hidden, in another space time, this is not the case. Temporality and space are central to porous penality. While liberal law provides that a judicial officer can impose punishment during court proceedings in a certain space and during specific hours, in practice and on a different spatio-temporal scale, the prison, police wardens, uh, prison wardens and or non-state actors also punish, but outside of the court space time, for different, albeit potentially overlapping purposes, and in contexts where the protective procedures and principles of liberal law are destabilized. Marcus Duber in The Dual Penal State 
argues that punishment or the right to exercise penal power is essentially discretionary and illegal because it didn't emerge within the same framework as the rule of law and liberal law. So he uses the term illegal to refer to that which is neither legal, i.e. within the law, nor illegal outside of it. Instead, it stems from a previous period. Punishment or the exercise of penal power is based on an ancient and patriarchal form of power, which um, Duba calls police power. Police power predates the emergence of the liberal state and stems out of the discretionary and patriarchal power of the Roman paterfamilias or the Greek oikonomicus, both of whom had the power to punish family members, including by killing them, in order to maintain the household peace. So although this power was eventually claimed by the king and subsequently by the modern state, whether the patriarch takes the form of the Roman paterfamilias or the modern state, penal power is not a new invention, but is based on this much older conception of governance as household governance. This conception of state as household springs from a different power to that of liberal law. And Foucault makes um, you know, similar point when he refers to uh, the, the difference between the juridical state and the police state. Because penal power isn't necessarily associated with law, although it may be, its exercise can take legal, illegal, or borderline legal forms. Given its history of colonial and apartheid rule, illegality and the arbitrary exercise of discretionary power are extremely pronounced in South Africa. So I'm now gonna give you um, three different examples of how porous penality and police power play out in South Africa. I'm going to start with the Makwanyani case, which was the first case heard by the South African Constitutional Court in 1995 where it outlawed the death penalty. Then I'm gonna discuss extrajudicial punishments inflicted by state actors such as prison wardens, prosecutors, and the police. And lastly, I'm going to um, discuss the extrajudicial punishments inflicted by civilians in former black townships and informal settlements. So um, all three of my examples demonstrate the fluidity of the penal forms and the legal categories which make um, penality porous, but also they come from different scales and they refer to different jurisdictions, legal and otherwise. And um, they must be taken into account, these different forms um, of, um, of extrajudicial punishment when assessing overall levels of societal punitiveness. In all three cases, I argue that the state abdicates its jurisdiction to enforce the protections provided for in liberal law. Okay, so um, the, the Makwanyani case has been referred to as a foundational moment because it was the first case heard by the newly formed constitutional court and also because it outlawed the death penalty. However, in doing so, it also entrenched the use of imprisonment and punishment in general without considering its centrality to colonial and apartheid rule. In ruling the death penalty to be unconstitutional, the court relied extensively on the notion of Ubuntu, which is a Kaza word which literally translated means humanness. 
But more metaphorically, it denotes an ethos of reciprocity and mutual aid, which were supposedly foundational values of the new South Africa. The court stated that offenders are capable of rehabilitation and should therefore not be put to death. But that since heinous crimes were the antithesis of Ubuntu, criminals could nonetheless be sentenced to long terms of imprisonment. I think there are parallels between the emergence of the liberal state in the 18th century and the emergence of formal democracy in South Africa in 1994, when all South Africans could vote for the first time. As Duba and others argue, Bentham and Beccaria supported a shift from the arbitrary punishments of medieval Europe, not because they were humanists, but because they were utilitarians. They argued that harsh punishment was an effective measure of, of a means of preventing crime, and that it was quite appropriate for the liberal state to exercise discretionary police power and mercy as it saw fit, by virtue of someone having committed a crime and thereby having violated the so-called social contract. Similarly, the Constitutional Court judges also corralled off those incorrigible offenders who had violated Ubuntu by virtue of their heinous crimes and legitimated harsh punishments against them. Like classical penal theorists, the judges sought to legitimate imprisonment through setting up a binary between two deterrents. The first one was putting the criminal to death and the, the, the alternative was subjecting the criminal to the severe punishment of a long term of imprisonment, including life. Without any empirical proof that imprisonment actually achieved its stated goal of being reformative, it both claimed this to be the case and also in a very utilitarian fashion stated that criminals had to be subjected to severe sentences because it was the likelihood of apprehension, conviction and punishment and I'm quoting, that are presently lacking in our criminal justice system, which would be the best deterrent and prevent the law from falling into disrepute. So following on, on this judgment, South Africa's parliament passed the 1997 Criminal Amendment Act, which formally removed the death penalty as a sentencing option and simultaneously encouraged courts to impose life imprisonment more often. To say that it achieved this goal is an understatement. South Africa has the highest rate, um, the, the highest recorded growth of life imprisonment in the world, and the third highest number of life serving prisoners in the world. Not only has the number of prisoners serving life sentences increased by 2000% from 433 in 1995 to 13,260 in 2016, but offenses that would not have attracted either the death penalty or life imprisonment during apartheid now attract mandatory life sentences, unless the court is satisfied that substantial and compelling circumstances exist. The jurisdictional bar of who can impose these sentences has also been lowered to include regional court magistrates. It is safe to say that South African prisons do not provide any form of social rehabilitation or the rehabilitation based on Ubuntu that the Constitutional Court referred to. Instead, they are containers for extrajudicial punishment. 
Prisoner allegations of assaults by wardens are commonplace and Department of Correctional Services, DCS, reaction units known as emergency support teams have been known to impose collective punishments inside prisons through the use of excessive force against prisoners. The most common weapon is the baton, um, but prisoners have also been kicked, tear gassed and shocked with electrified shields. These are euphemistically categorized as non-lethal incapacitating devices, but in practice, they are used as lethal weapons, as David Bruce argues in his fantastic work on violence in, in, prison, in prisons. So since the Correctional Services Act doesn't stipulate which types of weapons may be authorized, the use of body-worn electric shock devices, electric shock shields, and handheld electronic stun devices are all legally permitted. This is a classic example of how a lacuna or absence in law ends up authorizing discretionary extrajudicial, in this case, unlawful violence. Yet, the vast majority of complaints never reach the courts the police, or even the Judicial Inspectorate for Correctional Services, JICS, which is the statutory body set up to sort of independently make sure that prison, you know, that uh, there's no abuse going on in prison. Out of, uh, out of 2,341 complaints of official on prisoner assaults reported to JICS monitors in 2014 to 2015, only 109 were recorded. And of these, only 20 were investigated by JICS itself. Even in the case of alleged homicides inflicted as punishments by groups of prison of officials on single prisoners, of which JICS has reported 26 since 2009, no criminal prosecutions of any departmental officials have been opened. Thus, not only is extrajudicial punishment in prisons the norm, but it is enabled by the law. By abdicating jurisdiction, the law enables discretionary and borderline violence by prison officers. It is borderline because like police violence, it straddles the poorest boundary of law and arbitrariness. Along with long-term imprisonment and remand detention, police arrests and police violence have also increased since 1994. Although the vast majority of complaints to the Independent Police Investigative Directorate, IPID, concern allegations of police brutality meted out against the racialized poor, very few result in internal disciplinary sanctions or criminal convictions. The total number of police killings registered since 1997 stood at more than 10,000 by February 2020, with 27 occurring during the first six weeks of South Africa's first COVID lockdown. As at the end of March 2021, IPID investigations included 794 killings by police, 665 torture cases, 1,635 alleged shootings and thousands of assault cases. Yet SAPS, South African Police Service, failed to initiate nearly half of the watchdog's disciplinary recommendations. And despite the high number of killings and brutality allegations reported to IPID in 2020-2021, SAPS only dismissed six police officers after initiating um, departmental hearings. One out of 13 adult men is arrested annually in South Africa with half of all arrestees spending three or more months in pretrial detention in custody. 
Of these, the majority are poor, black, and alleged to have committed non-serious statutory offenses. Um, since the law no longer provides for after-hours bail applications, a person who has been arrested and detained, particularly over the weekend, will experience punitive treatment without having been found guilty of any offence, least of all one which deserves a period of incarceration. This is tantamount to extrajudicial punishment. Moreover, um, people accused of offences, more serious offences, re uh, referred to in Schedule 5 and 6 of the Criminal Procedure Act, are denied bail as a matter of course, unless they are able to satisfy the court that their release is in the interest of justice or that they can demonstrate exceptional circumstances. So, you know, the onus of proof is reversed. Since shock and outrage of the community is one of the grounds upon which a court may deny bail, the door is open for an ambiguous and vengeful community to play a central role in bail decisions. This renders the bail process unstable and illegal in as much as it is based on emotions rather than supposedly rational legal doctrine. More than half of the 2000 people admitted annually to the Polsmoor Remand Detention Facility, which RDF in Cape Town, uh, more than half of these uh, 20,000 people come from only six police stations in poor racialized areas, with many being detained because they just can't afford bail. The conditions of remand detention at Polsmoor are appalling, with the majority of detainees accommodated in overcrowded communal cells with the capacity ranging from 15 to 30, in some instances housing up to 80 with only one toilet. In 2016, a public service commission inspection of the Polsmoor RDF found the cells to be alarming and not fit for human habitation. At the time of the inspection, the RDF housed about 4,400 male detainees in a facility designed for 1,600, some 246% over capacity. Prisoners had no more than an hour per week outside of their triple bunk cells, had to urinate in the shower, use a bucket for their ablutions and received inadequate medical care. The conditions inside the cells included broken windows, filthy blankets, no hot water, and lice infestations. In most cases, however, after spending time in pretrial detention, the charges are withdrawn or struck from the roll due to lengthy delays in bringing the matter to trial. In fact, the overall number of prosecutorial withdrawals has increased steadily since 2003, and annual prosecution rates compared to the number of police arrests which have increased have significantly decreased by 22%. But, so this isn't because of a lack of police referrals. Prosecutors ascribe the high rates of withdrawals to alternative dispute resolution mediation, ADRM. These increased dramatically from 14,808 in 2002 to 2003 to 184,314 in 2014 to 2015. So while theoretically based on restorative justice principles in terms of which the withdrawal agreements are drawn up after the accused and the victim participate in a formal mediated process and the agreement is then ratified by the court and entered into a central register, in practice, this doesn't happen. Instead, 75% of ADRMs consist of off-the-record corridor mediations with prosecutors withdrawing charges, sometimes in the corridors outside the courts. 
on the condition that the accused pays compensation to the victim without a formal mediated process. So the fact that these are conducted by individual prosecutors without being entered into a central register and without the accused person having admitted guilt renders the whole process entirely discretionary and in this sense, policial. In fact, the courts have no oversight over the process at all. It is also a form of extrajudicial punishment given that the accused has to pay or do something for an alleged crime without having been found guilty in court. Given the high rate of withdrawals, it is unsurprising that the bail decision is perceived by both the accused and the victims of crime as the last opportunity for the courts to make a decision that seems like a punishment. So in this sense, bail denial is an extrajudicial, albeit lawful form of punishment, even though technically it is not punishment. So the boundaries established by liberal law between arrest, pretrial detention, and punishment are porous and blurred. This disconnect and collapse takes place on multiple spatiotemporal levels, especially because punishment is meted out at the time of arrest or in the police cells, and temporally because it occurs before a judicial finding of guilt. In all cases, however, the normal liberal framing of criminal justice is destabilized and precarious. Withdrawals are not included by the National Prosecuting Authority um, for the purposes of calculating its almost 100% conviction rate. So South Africa's high rate of successful prosecutions is clearly the result of prosecutors deciding not to prosecute. Thus, the initial accusation is foundational to the resultant extrajudicial punishment, whether it results in arrest, remand detention, the payment of a fine, or civilian inflicted punishments. In all of these instances, a legal or non-judicial discretion plays a central role in what George Pavlich refers to as um, lawless violence. Um, and extrajudicial punishment isn't only inflicted by the state, and I'm now going to discuss um, the infliction of extrajudicial punishment in um, former black townships. So given the pluralist legal approach adopted by the colonial and apartheid governments, which subjected black Africans to summary justice, which was actually summary injustice, and an extensive localized and legally arbitrary form of rule, it is unsurprising that extrajudicial punishments played and continue to play a central role in the production of violent social orders in marginalized spaces, such as informal settlements and former black townships. I'm not arguing that extrajudicial punishments, including what Ananya Roy refers to as racialized banishments, don't also occur in the more well-off formerly white only areas, to the contrary. However, the affluent have better ways of masking their violence by, for example, contracting out to private security companies. And they have the financial and social capital to use law as a weapon of protection for their unlawful and or borderline lawful expulsive violence, which is in effect extrajudicial punishment. At the very least, it's a banishment, but sometimes it's also a physical assault for the crime of just being out of place as a poor black person. 
Between January and um, to March 2021, vigilante-related murder cases constituted 15%, the third highest cause of South Africa's total recorded murders in those cases where a motive could be detected. When viewed over time, vigilante-related murders, kidnappings, attempted murders, assaults, etc., also seem to have increased. For example, in Kaya which is a former black township on the outskirts of Cape Town, recorded vigilante murders rose from 35 in 2003 to 106 in 2012, dropping to 69 in 2016. And in Yanga, another former black township in Cape Town, which is sometimes referred to as the country's murder capital, they increased from 18 in 2003 to 97 in 2014. These are the recorded cases. In practice, very few people are arrested for vigilante-related violence, and very few of these cases are recorded at all. Unless lethal collective violence is involved, or large crowds of people act violently or visibly confront the police by, for example, stoning their police vehicles, which would then lead to charges of public violence, everyday acts of extrajudicial punishment, such as shack evictions, corporal punishment, interrogations and kidnappings, etc., are largely ignored. Only rarely does the police database indicate actions taken against community members who purportedly exercise community arrests and in the process assault the person suspected of wrongdoing. In certain instances, there is outright complicity with the police watching or even, or, or, and, or even assisting residents to evict and thereby punish suspected criminals. Even in spectacular cases of violence, which directly threaten the state's sovereignty and are perpetrated by large crowds of people who beat or burn alleged criminals to death, prosecutions are rare. So between 2000 to 2016, out of the 746 vigilante-related murder cases recorded at the three police stations which service the township of Kailitsha, only 264, 35%, resulted in police referrals to prosecutors. In 469 cases, 65%, there were neither arrests nor suspects recorded, which basically means that there was no investigation. When the police do gather evidence and refer vigilante-related cases to prosecuting authorities, more often than not, the matter doesn't reach the trial stage and convictions are few and far between. Thus, contrary to liberal theory, which frames punishment beyond the state as unlawful, in the blurry spaces of porous penality, illegal practices are regarded as licit and bolster um, rather than challenge the state's illegal and essentially expulsive penal power. Because they assist in keeping a certain kind of order, one which doesn't challenge the, spa the state per se. The punitive forms of local justice which occur in the marginalized spaces of former black townships and informal settlements are both the products of and contributors to the porous boundaries between life and death, between security and insecurity, between law and violence, and between different forms and infrastructures of extrajudicial punishment. To give some examples, decisions by a street committee to evict or expel have the often realized potential to collapse into deadly violence when the crowd or certain people within the crowd go beyond the initial decision. While the community may have decided to evict but not to assault, to beat but not to kill, 
to interrogate, but not to torture, to torture, but not to kill, etc. In practice, the boundaries between these unlawful penal forms are porous and susceptible to collapsing in on each other. Relatedly, the normative lines between community policing and extrajudicial punishment, between community and mob, and between victim and offender are also porous, with people assuming contemporaneous identities. Sometimes the police arrest someone while they are being beaten by the community and take them to hospital where they die in police custody as a result of their injuries. The deceased are then recorded as being suspects in relation to unproven crimes and the police can then close the file because you, know, you can't have a case against a dead person. It is quite common for small groups of men, some of whom get paid for their services, to forcefully place a suspected thief in the trunk of a vehicle and drive them around until they point out the location of stolen goods. In other instances, suspects are summoned to meetings in community halls, outside open spaces, or in, the empty, or in empty containers, where they are interrogated, often accompanied by physical violence, in order to locate stolen property. So the space of the trunk, the hall, the container, and the empty lot become temporary spaces of confinement, interrogation, vengeance, arbitrary violence, and sometimes death. In this sense, the boundaries between everyday infrastructures and infrastructures of penal violence are also porous with one space assuming multiple functions. Okay, so I'm just gonna make some concluding remarks. I've given examples of the extrajudicial punishments inflicted by prison wardens, police, prosecutors, and civilians in former black townships and informal settlements. There are many more examples, such as the penal violence meted out by heavily armed security company employees in the affluent and largely white suburbs of Johannesburg and by municipal police in central business districts throughout South Africa. These penal forms target the racialized urban poor, in particular unemployed young black men. In most instances, the state affirms and legitimates this violence by abdicating its jurisdiction to act against it. There are virtually no arrests, no trials, and sometimes there's active participation. These must be taken into account when assessing penal punitiveness in a given society, but particularly in South Africa, where dropping prison rates are not an indication of decreasing punitiveness. As Duba argues, the illegal discretion that is at the heart of the exercise of police power in liberal states plays a central role in the instability and violence that makes penality porous. Observed empirically, punishment is porous. It is based on the exercise of arbitrary power and it leaks and seeps into unlawful violence. Thus, penality is always fluid, multiple, and dispersed. The formal criminal justice system never has the monopoly on punishment that it is supposed to have. Thus, all forms of penality are porous because punishment, and specifically the exercise of penal power, is a violent and coercive form of social control, which is always susceptible in all societies of morphing into extrajudicial punishment and into gratuitous violence. And in the vast majority of cases, this violence is always targeted at the racialized poor, with the state mostly abdicating its jurisdiction to act against the perpetrators. So to refer to penality as porous is to acknowledge the illegal violence on which law or the liberal state depends to preserve its sovereignty 
even as it shares its claimed monopoly over lawful violence with those who inflict unlawful violence. So we must therefore recognize that extrajudicial punishment is an integral component of penality. And current measures and definitions of punishment are based on idealized state and Western-centric epistemologies on an entirely different scale, or as de Souza Santos would put it, in terms of a map of misreading. This scale hides, historic, um, the, hides the historical and structural violence and the many forms of violence and coercion that accompany the formal criminal justice system. So I completely agree with uh, Didier Fassin, who calls for a broader definition of punishment to include that which occurs in practice, as opposed to limiting it to that which should happen in terms of law. The fact that penality is porous doesn't mean that this occurs to the same degree everywhere. Various forms of various types of penality, they overlap, combine and assemble together across various space times coexisting um, precisely because they, they manifest on different spatiotemporal scales. But penality is particularly porous in South Africa with its history of legal pluralism, tradition of extrajudicial and extralegal violence, high levels of social inequality, comparatively weak state form and history of colonial and apartheid rule. Even so, the consequences of historic and contemporary racialized mobility restrictions and other expulsive projects such as urban gentrification and crimigration have shaped this tight coupling of spatialization and criminalization in all contexts, global North countries included. And this has produced contemporary marginalities on multiple spatiotemporal scales. Yet, because the technologies of state violence are always implemented in a scalar way, the greater the inequality, the more scales there are and the less chance there is of legal challenges to the situation. So it is in the informal, fluid and unstable penal processes, as much as in elaborate statutes, judgments and constitutions that we must situate our understanding of punishment. Um, I think I'll, I'll just end it there. Thanks.